Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to today's session uh, on redundancy. Um, I should apologise at the outset. I've got a bit of a heavy cold, so um, I may end up sounding like Barry White by the end of the talk. Um, <laughs> um, it's gratifying to see lots of people here. It's, um, hopefully that's not a, a portent of sort of economic pessimism, economic doom. Uh, we've called today's session a redundancy masterclass. Um, someone pointed out to me uh, a couple of days ago, masterclass usually involves students demonstrating in front of a uh, in front of the class and then being critiqued, um, and persons in the audience about that, uh, then being critiqued by the by the teacher. You'll be pleased to know we're not going to ask you to come up and uh, conduct redundancies in front of the class. Um, what we are going to do later on, though, is um, show you a video um, of an example redundancy situation uh, with a few deliberate mistakes in it, featuring a couple of members of the team who you may recognise, um, and you may see them in an entirely different light after you've watched, watched the video. Um, that's for later, though. Uh, before we get to that, uh, myself and uh, Virginia Allen, a senior associate in the employment team here, are going to talk through all the sort of key issues you need to think about um, when you're conducting a redundancy situation. Um, so I'm going to be looking at have you got a redundancy situation at all, the issues around pooling, bumping, selection, uh, alternative roles, asking for volunteers, and then Virginia is going to look at the consultation process leading up to termination of employment and, and appeals. Um, before we get into the detail, I think if there's one point I would say suggest you take away from today's session, it's that um, planning is is absolutely key. You need to do all your thinking about why have we got a redundancy situation, what should our pool be, how can we justify having the pool that we've got, what selection criteria are we going to use, are those objective, how are we going to evidence our, our thinking on the selection criteria. You need to do a lot of thinking before you actually take this to the employees. Um, but Having said that, you need to do a lot of thinking, but not come to all your conclusions, because obviously you're taking the your thinking to the employees for consultation, and it has to be consultation with a view to getting the employees' input on onto the onto your thinking. So I guess the first question, briefly, because this isn't usually too much of an issue in practice, is: Have you got a redundancy situation? You'll have a redundancy situation where um, the employers going to cease carrying on business or can cease carrying business in a particular place or if you have reduced requirements for employees of a particular kind either at a particular place or or overall throughout your business some things in a redundancy situation isn't however um, actually just making to want, make, wanting to make cost savings doesn't amount to a redundancy situation you need to translate that into a reduced requirement for a particular kind of employees even though cost savings is generally the driver for this Changing terms and conditions isn't a redundancy situation, wanting to do that, although um, it's worth bearing in mind that if you're potentially firing and rehiring people to change terms and conditions, that could trigger collective consultation obligations, which Virginia is going to talk about. Uh, and thirdly, if you've got a mobility clause in an employee's um, contract, that might be a way to avoid a redundancy situation as well, which is what the case of Home Office against Evans was dealing with. Um, that case arose out of the closure of uh, Waterloo International. The employees in question had uh, mobility clauses in their employment contracts um, and they wanted to relocate staff and said therefore because we're relocating you we haven't got a redundancy situation um, and the Court of Appeal agrees. Um, so that may be in some circumstances a way to avoid a redundancy situation or more 
significantly a redundancy payment. Uh, in my experience, at least, the issues that give people most sort of uh, cause for concern for thought in a redundancy situation are pooling, uh, bumping, and selection criteria. Um, pooling and bumping are to some extent interrelated, so we probably look at those together um, first off. Pooling is the situation of um, what's the pool of potentially redundant employees um, from which we're going to choose our redundant employees. So for example, if you have 10 secretaries, you want to reduce it down to six, probably your pool is going to be those 10 secretaries. Um, but in general terms, it's people doing the same job or people who are doing jobs where the duties and responsibilities are um, broadly interchangeable. Bumping, which causes even more confusion, is the idea that you may need to um, move a senior person whose role has disappeared into a junior person's role and therefore make the junior person redundant um, to make way for the senior person bumping the junior person out of, out of the way. In terms of the pool first, I guess the um, the most important thing with identifying the pool is consideration, giving proper consideration to it. Um, if you don't um, give consideration to what your pool is going to be, whether you need to have a pool, the dismissal is almost certainly going to be unfair. However, if you do genuinely apply your mind to the, to the potential redundancy pool, it's going to be relatively difficult for an employee to challenge the pool. Um, and there's authority that says employers have quite a large degree of flexibility. For any given situation, there might actually be more than one potential redundancy pool that the employer can, can justify. So there isn't necessarily one right answer. Um, but um, it shouldn't be, employers shouldn't think that um, just because you've implied, applied your mind to it, that gets you home and dry. Even if you've applied your mind to it, there's still a risk that a tribunal will say, actually, you've thought about it, but you've come to the conclusion that's, uh, that's unfair. The pool you've chosen is too narrow. Um, a couple of examples of that. The first one is the Hendy Banks case, which I put up on the slide, concerned a printing company that was making redundancies. It decided that its pool of potentially redundant pe people should be employees only working on one particular piece of equipment. Um, when they were made redundant and brought tribunal claims, it, it emerged the tribunal that those people only spent about a third of their time working on this particular piece of equipment, and the rest of the time they were doing the same thing as everyone else in the department and therefore the tribunal said well actually it was unfair just to focus on these particular people you should have put everyone in the department in the pool the redundancy pool and then another possibly even better example um, which was reported just yesterday so it hasn't uh, made it onto the slides is a case called Capita Hartshead against Bayard um, concerned a firm of actuaries um, who were working for pension scheme clients the company, the firm, had lost a lot of business either because pension schemes are closed um, or because their clients have gone elsewhere. And they said, okay, there are four actuaries, but we want to have a pool of just one actuary, the number we need to reduce um, by, and we want to just have our, the pool being the person who's been most affected by the loss of business. And the reason for this is we think if we make someone else redundant and move this actuary in or, or move actuaries around, Clients are going to be upset because they're loyal to a particular actuary, and therefore we're going to we're going to lose even more business. And in one sense, you can, can see, you can see where the employer's concern uh, was coming from. Um, but that argument didn't succeed in the employment appeal tribunal. The the EAT said actually this was an unreasonably narrow pool. You should have put all the actuaries at risk, 
um, and um, actually the evidence is there was only really a slight risk um, of, of losing business if you had uh, moved actuaries around and made someone else redundant. And I have to say that chimes with my own experience that quite often in a redundancy situation you'll find there's a tension between you know what the law says you should do and sort of commercial pressures where you want to minimize the impact on the on the uh, organization in terms of how you carry out redundancies um, and often a company will say well we can't do it that way because there's going to be too much of an impact my experience is that tribunals will scrutinize that that kind of argument they won't just take it at face value and they'll want some some good evidence if you're if you're going to restrict how you carry out a redundancy, they want some good evidence to support that. The the other aspect related to pooling is the question of bumping. Should you um, move uh, a senior person who's at risk of redundancy into a junior role and make the junior employee redundant? Um, well, hopefully we have conflicting case law on this issue. Um, there is one case that says Failing to consider bumping and to discuss it with an employee doesn't in itself make a dis redundancy dismissal unfair. And then there's another case which says failing to consider bumping and discussing it with an employee does make a dismissal unfair. Um, so where does that leave us? Um, I guess it's worth saying two things. The case which says you should consider bumping um, and discuss it with the employee is the more recent case. Um, which, which could give an indication of where the, the tribunals and courts are going with this. Um, but equally, you can see why on the facts of that particular case, the tribunal did reach the conclusion that they did. The, the Fulcrum Pharma case, the more recent case, involved uh, redundancies in an HR department. Um, <coughs> there were two HR people and the company wanted to get rid of the more senior one. But the evidence was, the evidence that came out of tribunal, actually the two of them did quite similar roles. They, they did each other's duties. So you can see why in that situation the tribunal said, OK, we well, should look at bumping. Um, I think for now, the, the safe course of action if you're looking at a redundancy situation is probably to consider bumping, bringing more junior people in into the pool, um, and discussing it with the um, with the employees in the in I guess the primary pool if you like at the primary at risk area. Um, and the Fulcrum Pharma case says actually a good starting point is to say to the the people who are at, at risk of redundancy, would you want to move into a new junior role on the salary associated with that role? Um, because that is a point of confusion with a lot of people. You don't have to maintain the, the salary in the more junior role. So would the senior person be interested in moving, stepping down and taking the, the lower salary? Um, and if, having discussed it, you want to reject um, the idea of bringing more junior people into the pool, bumping, you need to have some, some sound business-type reasons for doing that. Um, and, you know, that might be because the more junior people have longer period of service. Um, it might be because actually the junior role is, is substantively quite different from the senior role. But those are the sorts of things you need to be thinking about. The other um, area which I say sort of gives people a lot of a lot of cause for thought is um, selection criteria. Um, both in terms of what criteria do you use and then how do you score people against selection criteria. I guess as a general principle you're looking for selection criteria to be fair and objective, um, to be non-discriminatory and to be applied and in a fair way. What does fair and objective mean? 
Um, well, in, in general terms, it means you've got to have criteria which are going to be um, relevant to the job in question. Um, simplistically, that might be things like performance, that might be skills, slightly wider. You might be looking um, at attendance, disciplinary records. Um, and you need to be able to back it up with some kind of concrete evidence as far as possible. Um, so, for example, performance, you might be looking at, at past appraisal scores. <coughs> Um, non-discriminatory as well clearly your whatever criteria you use can't discriminate against particular groups so for example if you've got a disabled employee um, and you're looking at attendance records as part of your criteria you might need to discount um, periods of absence related to the disability in, disc in scoring the disabled employee um, equally length of service brings risks around, if you're using like service, brings risks around um, potentially age discrimination, indirect sex discrimination. Having said that, what you shouldn't do is um, overcompensate to overprotect the, um, the employee with the benefit of discrimination protection to the benefit of, uh, to the detriment of other employees, which is what the case of Eversheds and DeBellin was looking at. That concerned uh, redundancies in a law firm. And one of the criteria that the law firm was looking at um, in choosing who to make redundancies was, was something called the lock-up period, i.e. the amount of time between um, uh, work being done and the firm getting paid for, paid for that work. Um, Mr. DeBellin's lock-up period was very long, so he got a score of 0.5 out of, out of a maximum of 2. Um, another employee, uh, Miss Reinholtz, um, was on maternity leave at the time, so the, the employer said, well, okay, well, let's be fair, sir, because she's on maternity leave, let's give her the maximum score of two out of two. Uh, when the final scores were in, uh, Mr. DeBellin got uh, 27, and Ryan Holtz got 27.5, and he said, well, actually, this is unfair, because the reason I've been made redundant is because you've wow. given the lady on maternity leave the maximum, the maximum score. And the case went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Um, he found, yes, it was unfair, and it was discriminatory against Mr. DeBellin, um, and what the EAT said was, yes, employees on maternity leave may need some extra extra protection, but it's got to be done in a proportionate way. Um, and in this case, there was a more proportionate approach that could have been taken, which would have been to look at the lockup for the period when they were both um, they were both at work at the same time, i.e., before um, Reinholz went on maternity leave. So in looking at your selection criteria, I think the message that comes out of that and in scoring employees, you need to make sure you are comparing like with like as far as possible. Um, there have been lots of cases on selection criteria over the year. Um, on the slide, some, some examples of selection criteria that have got employers into trouble. Um, employees who keep the company viable, employees best suited for the needs of the business under the new operating conditions, both of those found to be inappropriate selection criteria. Um, and I, I think what's interesting about those two cases is actually if the employer had been a little bit more uh, sophisticated about how it had approached it, it probably would have got away with it. Um, because actually looking at people who are going to be suited to the business going forward or keep the company viable sounds perfectly logical. But I think the concern was that these criteria were a bit vague, a bit nebulous. So maybe the employer should have been looking at actually what's, what performance standards do these people have, what kind of skills do we need going forward and how do their skills match up to what we need going forward. So it's sort of making it as tangible and as objective <coughs> as possible. 
Um, other criteria that have caused problems, employs you cost the least. Um, attitude, which is described as dangerously ambiguous and vague. Um, employment tribunal getting a little bit carried away. I think vague would have probably done the job just as well. Um, company values, um, in this particular case, was also found to be um, unfair. The tribunal did say that actually company values in itself um, isn't necessarily unfair, but in this particular case it was unfair because the company's uh, official values had only just been introduced and not all the employees were aware of it and had been trained on it, so it was clearly unfair to, to assess them against something which they didn't, didn't really know about. And then criteria which disadvantage fixed-term or part-time um, employees um, or indeed any other particular group. Um, and even if you've got criteria which, which look fair in principle, you need to make sure you, you score em employees fairly as well. Um, so that may mean involving more than one manager to do the score scoring process, and certainly I'd always advocate that. Um, and that's what the case of EZ Medical says. Um, in that case, the manager found it difficult to justify why he gave particular scores to employees, and he'd be the only, been the only person that had scored the employees. And particularly if you're using um, criteria which are a little bit more nebulous, you're not just pointing to previous appraisal scores, for example. I think it's a really good idea to have more than one person um, doing the scoring because it takes takes the argument to sort of a bias out of out of the equation a little bit. And then common sense, really, but you need to make sure actually the scores you give are sort of are fair and justifiable. So Hattersley in Lucas Aerospace, an employee who had almost perfect attendance record, was only given fifty of the available score, um, that was found to be unfair, unsurprisingly. Um, and as similar vein, Bolton and Paul against Arnold, um, employee who's had an authorised half day of absence, but that was treated as a day of unauthorised absence, that, again, that was found to be unfair, not, not particularly surprising. And it's worth bearing in mind that um, if you do get this wrong, you might be facing unfair dismissal claims. But actually, you might be facing um, discrimination allegations as well, which was the case in the in the Chaga case, um, where uh, an employee of Indian origin was made redundant um, instead of a um, an employee a white employee, uh, and he was able to, to claim um, career long losses um, in the particular circumstances, which made it a very expensive mistake for the employer. Just before handing over to Virginia, I'm just going to touch on um, a couple of quick final points. The first is suitable alternative employment. Uh, if you don't look for a suitable alternative employment, the dismissal is almost certainly going to be unfair. Um, and it's an ongoing duty until um, the individual's employment terminates. But you don't have to go to the ends of the earth. The case law says you have to make reasonable efforts only. Um, does that mean you can just point employees in the direction of the company's internet? Uh, possibly, I suppose, but I would advocate being a little bit more proactive than that, particularly in light of the information which the tribunals expect you to give us will we'll look at it uh, in, a, in a moment. Do you need to look at the wider roles within the wider group? Again, potentially, it depends how closely connected the different group companies are, but you're never going to be criticised for doing too much. Similarly, do you need to look at more junior roles? Yes, I think you should probably should look at more junior roles. As I say, you're never going to get criticised for doing too much. And then how much information do you need to give? I mean, this is quite an interesting, relatively recent case. 
Um, it concerned an individual who was made redundant. He was to told about suitable alternative uh, vacancies within the organisation, um, at least one of which was potentially suitable for him. Um, what he wasn't told about was the salary attached to the to the roles, and he assumed that the potentially suitable role would be on too low a salary for him, so he didn't pursue it. After he left, he saw the job being advertised on for forty thousand pounds, which was the same as he'd earned in his old role. And he said, "Well, actually, if I'd known that, I would have I would have gone for the job myself when I was still there, and I would have taken it, and therefore I've been unfairly dismissed." Um, and interestingly, the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Um, agreed with him and said yes actually he should have been told the, the salary details and therefore his dismissal was unfair. Um, purely on a personal level I think that's a slightly harsh decision. Um, I, you know, you would expect there to be some obligation on employees to be a little bit proactive themselves but that's not what the EAT said, it's the decision we've got. Um, so it's a good idea to give employees salary information about the alternative vacancies and I think it's not a massive leap um, from there for a, um, a future tribunal to say actually employees should have other basic details about the job enough to make an informed decision about it so it's, it's probably a good idea to give employees salary details and ensure they have a basic job description as well not just not just a job title. Um, what do you do if you're in the situation where you've got more than um, one person who's interested in a, in a suitable alternative vacancy can you interview should you interview um, shorter answer is yes you can and actually if you're in a more of a recruitment type of situation uh, in terms of appointing to suitable alternative roles um, tribunals will give you a lot more flexibility um, recent case of Morgan against the Welsh Rugby Union says you can follow a normal recruitment type of process you can use slightly more subjective criteria you don't have you're not required to achieve the same sort of high standards you are when you're selecting people for redundancy in the first place and then finally before I hand over um, asking for volunteers um, do you have to do it uh, probably don't have to do it it's probably not going to make the redundancy unfair if you don't um, seek volunteers but it's always a good idea to do it, it'll play well with the tribunal, might make your redundancy process a bit more um, painless. Um, the one thing I would say is if you are inviting people to volunteer for redundancy, um, you should do so on the, on the clear understanding that ultimately it's up to the uh, employer to decide whether it accepts any particular invitation, because what you don't want is to have your entire department volunteering for redundancy or all your good people volunteering for redundancy and another poor performers volunteering and, and being left with the wrong people. Um, so I'm going to hand over now to Virginia, he's going to talk about uh, the process of discussing all that with your employees. So turning now to the consultation process, and I guess the starting point here is that you're almost always going to have to consult individually in order for any redundancy dismissal to be fair. Whether or not you're going to also have to consult collectively depends on how many propose, uh, dismissals you're proposing to make. If you're proposing to dismiss at least 20 people within a 90-day period at the same establishment, then you're into collective consultation territory as well. Um, if you're proposing to dismiss between 20 and 99 people, then you've got to consult over a minimum of 30 days. If you're looking at more than 100 or more people, you're subject to a minimum of a 90-day consultation period. 
Um, collective consultation will start before you get into individual consultation, but the two processes do overlap. I'm now going to go on to start by looking a little bit at how you make a consultation process fair, um, how you go about telling your employees that there is a redundancy situation, um, and then I'll get into a bit more detail about what consultation actually involves in practice and what can go wrong. So the starting point is really um, that you need to consult with people before you've made any decisions that are set in stone. Um, and it would be helpful just to have a show of hands here as to anyone in this room who's been involved with a consultation process where their outcome changed as a result of something that was said during the consultation. Okay. So there's a few of you, and, and actually I have to say there's more of you than I thought might be the case, because on the whole um, we tend to find that employers get really frustrated when we explain the hoops that they have to jump through, um, when an, more often than not they will have already decided at the beginning of the consultation what the outcome is going to be, and now they then have to go through a process of pretending that actually they haven't made any decisions in order to avoid unfair dismissal claims. But unfortunately that is where we are um, based on the current legal position. So um, you need to appear to have an open mind, you need to appear to be capable of being influenced as to what the outcome is going to be, um, you need to provide adequate information so that the consultation can be meaningful, and that involves taking sufficient time. If you try and rush through a consultation in three days, then the tribunal is going to say this is a complete sham um, and you, you needn't have bothered. Um. So the other thing you need to do is appear to take the employee's suggestions seriously. Um, even if uh, you, you know in your mind as soon as someone comes up with a suggestion that this is really not going anywhere, it's always a good idea to appear to take it away and think about it um, because after all that's the whole point of the consultation. So how do you go about telling employees that there is this redundancy situation? Well really there are two options. You can either send an email around or you can get everyone into a meeting and, and tell them what's going on. Now, if you've got 500-odd employees, no one's suggesting that you have to try and find a room that you can squeeze them all into. Um, in that situation, it would be perfectly acceptable to send a carefully worded email. Um, but if it is feasible to get everyone into a meeting, then that's um, what we would recommend doing. Now, once you've got everyone in the, in the meeting or you, you're drafting your email, you need to set out in sufficient detail the rationale for your proposals, make it clear that no decisions have been made, um, and that doesn't just mean saying that no decisions have been made, it means using language which is provisional around you know, pr proposed redundancies, uh, potential outcomes, etc. You need to give the employees an idea of what's going to happen next, what the consultation process is going to involve, and roughly how long it's going to be before you expect to be making a, a final decision. Now one problem we often see arising in this situation is individual employees wanting to get into a debate about the detail at that initial meeting. And what I would normally suggest if that happens is reminding the employees that the whole point of the consultation is to listen to their comments and, and to discuss the details and therefore encourage them to defer that discussion to a little bit further down the line. Having said that, it is a good idea to provide the name of somebody who the employees can contact during the consultation process if they have any questions. So I've already said that the obligation to consult collectively arises where there are going to be, or it's proposed that there will be 20 or more redundancies at the same establishment within a 90-day period. But how on earth do you actually apply that test in practice? 
first of all, which dismissals are going to be relevant for these purposes? Well, it's not just compulsory redundancies. It will also include individuals who have volunteered to be made redundant. Um, and it will, as Chris mentioned earlier on, include uh, situations where you're going to terminate an employee's contract and offer them new terms and conditions. A third category uh, which may potentially be relevant is employees on fixed term contracts which are coming to an end. And um, up until very recently the view was that, that those situations would count towards your um, thresholds for collective consultation purposes. Um, but last week there was a case um, in the Scottish Employment Appeal Tribunal involving the University of Stirling which said that actually um, fixed term contracts coming to an end would only be relevant if um, the contracts are being brought to an end as part of a wider business decision um, and not if they're just coming to an end because uh, the project's finishing or the, the period of maternity cover is coming to an end. Um, so that might be something you need to sort of look into in a bit more detail if it becomes relevant for you. So um, how do you go about calculating the numbers? Well, you're looking at a 90-day period which is rolling um, and the question is how many dismissals will take effect during that period? And taking effect means the notice period actually coming to an end. I guess the, the next question is, well, what is an establishment for these purposes? Well, an establishment is the unit to which the employees are assigned to carry out their duties. Now, ordinarily, geography is going to be relevant. So if you have one office um, and all of your employees work out of that office, that is going to be the establishment, and it's really very straightforward. Um, but by way of example, um, in the last week or so, there's a case that has come out involving Woolworths, and um, in that situation, the union was trying to argue that the establishment was actually the whole of Woolworths' retail operation, meaning that all the employees working for Woolworths would have a right to be consulted collectively. Um, and the tribunal said, well, no, that's not right. The, the establishment is each individual Woolworths store. Um, and one of the main reasons for them reaching that conclusion seems to have been that each employee was working for a particular store and they weren't moving around between different stores. So what do you actually have to do if you're in a collective consultation situation? Well, there's certain written information that you are obliged by statute to provide to employee representatives, um, and that's set out on, on the slide. Um, you also have to consult with your employee representatives about how to avoid dismissals, um, how to reduce the number of dismissals, and how to mitigate the consequences of, of what you're planning to do. So that leads us on to some more tricky questions about collective consultation situations. For example, when are you obliged to start consulting? Well, the legislation talks about proposing to make dismissals. Um, and we know that that means more than just contemplating, um, but it arises before you get to any decisions that have been set in stone. Um, and there's been a body of case law on this point, because um, in certain situations, say for example you've decided you want to close a factory, once the, the business has made that decision it's inevitable that redundancies are going to arise. And in the UK coal decision it was said that as a result in that situation you would be obliged to consult about the decision to close the factory and not just the redundancies that arise from it. However, in the uh, second case listed up on the slide, United States and Nolan, the United States was proposing to uh, close down a military base that it had in Hampshire, and it said, surely it cannot be right that we have to consult with our employees about whether or not we close this military base. 
um, and they relied on some ECJ authority in, in favour of that argument. And the Court of Appeal has actually referred that question on to the ECJ, so we're going to have to wait for some further guidance on that point. In the meantime, the safest thing to do is going to be to consult about underlying business reasons. So when can you give notice of termination? I've already talked about the minimum timeframes for collective consultation. Um, having said that, if you have finished your collective consultation before those timeframes are up, then you can give notice of termination, provided that the notice does not expire until the, the, the 30 day or the 90 day period, as the case may be. So why does all of this matter? What happens if you don't comply with your collective consultation obligations? Well, an employment tribunal can make a protective award of up to 90 days pay per effective employee, and that's uncapped, so we're talking about a potentially very expensive claim. And um, the older case law, um, Susie Radin, the case listed on the slide, suggests that the purpose of that award is punitive in nature rather than compensatory. So it's not about how much loss the employee has suffered, it's about punishing the employer for not complying with their obligations. Fortunately, there's been a bit of a move more recently away from that sort of approach. And in the Hutchins and Permacell case, it was said that the seriousness of the employer's breach is relevant to the size of the award. Um, similarly, in, in Unison and Leicestershire County Council, it was said that um, a failure of the employee representatives to bother to actually actively engage in the consultation process might be relevant to the amount of the award. And in the Woolworths case that I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, an award of 60 days pay was given because Woolworths had taken the trouble to have a, a one-hour conference call with their employee reps. So they've done a little bit of consultation, but that was the, the, the total consultation that they carried out. So who do you have to consult with? Well, um, you'll have to consult with appropriate representatives of those employees who are effective. And they could be trade union reps, or they could be reps of an existing employee body that you may have. But more often than not, you're going to have to elect reps for these purposes. And the next question that we often get is, well, how many reps do we need? And that's going to depend on how many groups of employees are affected by your proposals, and equally by how many employees there are in each group. Um, and once you figure that out, you should have an idea of how many individual reps you'll need to be able to effectively canvass the individual's opinions. In terms of the relationship between collective and individual consultation, if you carry out your collective consultation well, then it can um, make your individual consultation obligations less onerous, um, but it's still going to be necessary to consult individually as well. Um, and Mugford and Midland Bank is an example of a case where um, the employer had consulted collectively over selection criteria and then, then did not see the need to talk about that with the individuals, and the tribunal was critical of that approach. Confidentiality is up on the slide because um, if you are going to be talking about sensitive business decisions with your employee reps, you might want them to sign up to non-disclosure agreements to protect your business. Um, and lastly, you do have to notify the Secretary of State if you're proposing 20 or more redundancies. Um, if you're proposing between 20 and 99, you've got to give at least 30 days notice. Um, 100 plus, you're looking at 90 days notice. And you do that using an HR1 form. Now, before I move on from collective consultation, it's just worth mentioning that the government is currently inviting evidence from interested parties um, about how we might change the collective consultation 
uh, obligations. And I know one thing that they're thinking about is abolishing the 90-day consultation period and just asking employers to consult for a minimum of 30 days, regardless of how many employees are involved. And certainly um, that would be a welcome development. So having done all the planning that Chris talked about earlier on, you're going to have to um, put the individual employees at risk. And there are really two ways that you, go, you can go about doing that. And the first one, option one on the slide, is the textbook approach. Um, and here what would happen is that you put all your staff in the pool at risk of redundancy, consult with them, and then undertake a selection process partway through the consultation. Um, the second approach is a shortcut, and what that involves is that you only put at risk those people who you have already provisionally selected for redundancy. Um, now, this second approach is uh, often preferred by employers because it means um, it's less damaging to employee morale. You're only consulting with people who you actually think you're going to get rid of. Um, but um, there is a risk associated with this approach. And by way of example, we had a client who came to us after they'd already gone down the option two route, um, and there was a pool of three individuals, and they chose only to consult with the person that they had provisionally selected to go. Um, and when that got to the tribunal, the tribunal found the dismissal to be unfair, partly because of that failure to consult with each of the three people in the pool. Having said that, you could contrast that situation with one where there could be hundreds of people in your organisation doing the same job, and one would expect that uh, a tribunal would be um, more amenable to an employer taking the view that they weren't going to consult with each person individually um, and just to start with those who actually um, had been provisionally selected. So um, up on the slide we have the key ingredients of what you need to talk about during your individual consultation process. Um, I'm not going to run through all of those now, um, but it's probably worth mentioning that one of the points that employees often want to focus on in practice is uh, their individual scores, particularly, of course, if they're the ones who are going to be going out the door. Um, they may well be wanting to talk in a lot of detail about why you've awarded a particular score. Um, so it's well worth being prepared before you walk into that meeting to be able to back up um, the numbers that you've given them. The other question that we find in practice often gets asked is, well, if you do make me redundant, how much money am I going to get paid? Um, now, that's something that we wouldn't advise that you offer uh, information about voluntarily right at the beginning of the consultation because it may appear to preempt the outcome. But equally, if someone's asking you that question, we see nothing wrong with providing them with a, a general idea of what sort of payments you will be looking at making. So some practical questions that, that we're often asked. How much notice do you need to give in advance of an individual consultation meeting? We would say at least 48 hours as a, as a general guide. How many meetings do I need to hold? Well, if you're looking at a situation where there is no selection process, then we'd say as an absolute bare minimum there should be two consultation meetings. Um, if you're going to be selecting from a pool, you're looking at a minimum of three or four meetings. Um, but this really is going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and if there are lots of issues that the employee is needing to discuss, then it's, it's always prudent to hold more meetings rather than fewer <coughs> meetings. There is actually no right of accompaniment um, in relation to redundancy consultation meetings. Uh, we would say it's still best practice to allow someone to bring a, uh, a colleague with them if they so wish. But what if the employee doesn't turn up to the meeting? Um, we'd say the safest thing to do in that situation is to reschedule the meeting at least once. 
Um, having said that, there are sometimes cases where the individual just refuses point blank to cooperate with the, with the consultation process. And if that happens, you may get to a stage where you have to reach a decision <coughs> without their involvement. A golden rule is always to create a useful paper trail as you're going along, so that if you do end up facing an unfair dismissal claim, you've got good evidence that you've gone through a proper process. And that means sending um, appropriate invitation letters to meetings um, and taking notes of your meetings and ideally getting an employee to review those and approve them as an accurate record. Now within our team we've put together some checklists which will serve um, as, a, as a good indication of how you can go about structuring a redundancy consultation meeting and also you can use those to record what's discussed in the meeting. So um, do let us know if you would like to have a look at those. Just some examples here of um, employers attempting over the years to get out of consulting with some uh, varying arguments. Firstly, um, an argument that some of you may have a lot of sympathy with, well, if I'd consulted it would have made absolutely no difference. Um, in Polkey, the Court of Appeal said, well, um, there may be exceptional circumstances where it's appropriate not to consult, uh, but here, and I quote, um, there was no compelling reason that the acts should fall until the employers had done their best to help the employee. Um, realistically, the chances of you successfully arguing that there are uh, exceptional circumstances, meaning you don't need to consult, are really very small. So um, it's, um, it's always best uh, just to get on with it. Um, the second case, Heron and CityLink, uh, the employer said, well, there was only one person we could make redundant. <coughs> The tribunal said, well, uh, and it went on to the EAT, said, well, that may be the case, but if you'd bother to ask the employee, you might have found out something relevant. For example, the employee might have said, well, I'd be interested in a more junior role, or they could have said, I'd be willing to take a significant salary cut. Um, of course, the chances of that happening in reality are probably very slim, but nevertheless, the EAT said the dismissal was unfair. And lastly, in De Grasse and Stockwell Tools, the employer said, yes, but we're only a very small company. Um, and the EAT said, well, that may be relevant to the formality and the nature of the consultation process that you carry out, but it doesn't get you out of having to do any consultation at all. So the next couple of slides set out some timeframes for consultation. Um, and I'm, I'll leave you to look at those in your own time. But I did want to point out that they are just intended as a guide. And um, really, you'll need to adapt them very much depending on the individual circumstances. So turning to some pitfalls, um, <coughs> one question that I have often been asked is, well, what do I do about ex-employee who's off sick or who's <coughs> on holiday um, who, or who's on maternity leave? Um, it's important to try and be flexible about how you consult in that situation. That might mean, for example, holding meetings by telephone, offering to go to the employee's house um, or allowing them to make written submissions about uh, the process. Um, it could also mean delaying concluding the consultation process until the individual's back in the office. But again, that depends very much on the circumstances. What if a lawyer turns up to a meeting? Well, you're within your rights in that situation to say um, that they need to go away again because in employees are not entitled to bring um, external lawyers to a consultation meeting. Um, and the last point that I wanted to highlight on this slide is that uh, of damaging emails. If you send emails which show that the consultation process is a sham, they will be disclosable if you end up in subsequent litigation um, and they have the potential to be hugely damaging. 
So it's always important not to create an unhelpful paper trail and to remind your managers within the business um, of that um, so that they don't send unhelpful emails either. And um, in the case study after the coffee break, we will be um, exploring um, some of these pitfalls um, and you will hopefully see how, how they come up in practice. Refusal of a suitable alternative role. This is really only relevant because if somebody um, unreasonably refuses a suitable alternative role that you've offered, it means they don't get a statutory redundancy payment. Now, statutory redundancy payments um, are just under um, £13,000 at the most, and most employers will get much less than that. So this isn't huge, uh, of huge importance for most employers in practice, and therefore I'm not proposing to go into any detail on it now. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say, though, is... If you do offer somebody a, uh, an alternative role, there is a statutory trial period of four weeks which will apply. So just turning now to um, what happens when you've completed your consultation process. At that stage, provided that you've resolved all outstanding issues so far as possible, you can uh, dismiss the employee. Um, best practice is to do that face-to-face -face and then to follow up in writing. If you're going to be offering enhanced terms, um, so an ex-gratia payment, um, it's always worth thinking about giving the employee a compromise agreement so that they are waiving any claims they might otherwise bring against the company. Do you need to offer a right of appeal? Um, well, the ACAS code, which talks about rights of appeal, doesn't actually apply to redundancy dismissals, but we would say best practice is always to offer a right of appeal. Um, and not least, because if you've got anything wrong during the consultation process, then the appeal gives you a chance to, to put your mistakes right. Um, so always a good idea to offer an appeal.